Namaste and good evening to all of you. Let us continue our meetings with Jesus, trying to see what the man did, what he said, what are the teachings which we get as yogis for living a spiritual life. And uh, we had been finishing the last of the satsangs at the point where Jesus controlled the elements of nature. He calmed down a storm. Compared to other things which he did, like instantaneously healing a paralyzed man, or instantaneously healing a blind or a leper, like giving them a new body or something, and not to mention the big ones where he raised people from the graves, this seems to be a small feat in the end. But according to the understanding of yoga, this denotes this yogic ideal of controlling the elements of the universe, and it is considered to be the result of a great accomplishment, of a great accomplishment. In most of yoga is centered... <coughs> around the reaching of Nirvikalpa Samadhi. It's the pattern generated by Patanjali with his Yoga Sutra, where he defines that the acme of spiritual realization is the state of Nirvikalpa Samadhi. But the state of Nirvikalpa Samadhi is not a state of communion with the nature. In Nirvikalpa Samadhi, the yogis don't calm down storms, or raise the dead. That's an accomplishment which belongs entirely to Purusha, to the pure spirit, to the transcendental part. It's simply the human being opening the lid on Sahasrara and having access to that transcendental consciousness, which is peaceful, silent, called by the Buddhists Shunyata, the void, or Nirvana, the extinction. And uh, therefore, in the big states of Samadhi or of enlightenment, there is no mention, there is no implication of somebody controlling the elements of nature. Controlling the elements of nature is, as I say it in um, Agama, in some of the metaphors which I give here for enlightenment, is like coming back on the other side of the hill. Like going to nirvana is climbing the hill and there is a peak experience. But then that peak experience has to be brought down the hill as uh, the parable of Zen, the parable of the ten bulls of Zen uh, calls it coming back to the village. Like it may be that you practice 30 years to reach nirvana and you reach it at the age of 36 like Buddha. And then the question is, what do you do when you come back? Like, what's the rest of the 36 years afterwards? Because you have to live with that. The day when you have reached nirvana is the beginning of the rest of your life. Something must happen afterwards. Some yogis and spiritualists of India, and not only, have been so confused by this turning point that they even allowed themselves to die. 
There have been yogis who reached nirvana and they said, and now what should I do when I see that everything is a lie and an illusion and the maya and should I just live in a theater play and pretend I still believe in this theater play? No, I don't believe in this theater play and I have obtained the right to step out of it. And then they stepped out of it. There are examples, not one, countless in India of yogis who after they reached nirvana, they didn't eat, they didn't move, and some of them walked in the Ganges without knowing how to swim. Like, it's very, it's a very remarkable thing which is happening then at the turning point. Because the question is, you have reached the top of the mountain, but are you going to come down with the view that you got from up there? Will people around you also benefit from it? Of course, you can say people around me are just a dream in a dream. What do I care if they benefit or not? Because probably they don't even exist. They are just like a movie. For me, you are all on a screen. It's a 3D screen I have in front of me. And you are painted there on that screen. What importance does it make if I'm helping you or not helping you? Or no, It's not my duty to help you. If it's my duty to help you, then I'm the slave of the need to help you. I'm a slave. I'm not a Buddha. I'm just bound by the thing that I have to be a nice person. And I have to teach you what I got. So Buddha is not even bound by this. He doesn't have to teach. He teaches because he chooses to teach. That's a totally different story. And that's what I'm trying to say here is that <clears throat> spirituality in its many forms says enlightened beings, they come back to the village. But when they come back to the village, they look like other human beings, but they are not quite exactly the same as other human beings because they have come from the top of the mountain. They have been to the top of the mountain and then they come on the other side of the hill. They cross the mountain. So, thus, this is the point where the great yogis say, well, so what does a yogi who is on the other side of the mountain do? He may choose to have fun and control the elements of nature, because when he's going up, he's not trying to control the elements of nature. Patanjali doesn't care if you can control a storm or not. That has nothing to do with the state of Nirvikalpa Samadhi. That has nothing to do with the opening of your crown chakra. It's a completely collateral thing. And there are people who have collateral skills without having the greatest thing at all. There are people who can heal with their hands. There are people who get a hit in their head and they can see the future and they can predict the future. There are many people that have odd qualities which sometimes enlightened beings don't have. Like Ramana Maharishi stated very clearly and sincerely that he had zero paranormal <coughs> accomplishments. He couldn't even heal with his hands. It's not that he didn't believe in the prana. But he should have done two years of pranayama to be able to control the prana and channel it through the body any way he wanted. And therefore, Ramana Maharishi could not heal with his hands. But there are today people who practice Reiki or healers like Juna or others, many others, who do have a remarkable magnetic power in their hands and who can produce effects, measurable. There are effects which are biological and not even that. 
There is a Hungarian parapsychologist who 20 years ago created a device called the Egeli Wheel, by which you can put your hands around it and see if you can produce some psychokinetic effect. You know, it's sold absurdly expensive because it's just a stupid little device size of a mobile telephone. You know, and they sell it with more than 100 euros. So it's kind of, you wonder if it's worth the price. But it's an interesting and it's not nothing complex. It's just a very smart idea which he had. You know, and it's a device which can measure the psychokinetic power of a human being. And it doesn't mean you are enlightened if you can spin the Egeli wheel. And if you are enlightened, it doesn't mean you can spin the Egeli wheel. And if you spin the Egeli wheel, it doesn't mean you are in Sahasrara. So these are collaterals. And thus, there is this understanding in yoga that controlling the elements of nature is either something which can happen before your enlightenment, and then it's a big danger because you are a person who is endowed with some hocus-pocus abilities and it's most probable that you will become very egocentric because it's like me, Tarzan, ha, 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 I can control the storm. No, sometimes even some shamans can do that. Doesn't mean they are enlightened. Most of them are not at all. And on the other hand, it can mean that somebody like Ramana Maharishi can say, if now I control a storm, I'll be a little bit like Jesus. Like when I will do like, ho, ho, and it stops, then people will believe in me. But people are stupid that they believe in you if you stop a storm, because it doesn't demonstrate that you are enlightened. It just demonstrates that you have a power, a siddhi, as it's called in Sanskrit, over some elements of nature. To stop a storm or to do other things is a power on prakriti. It's in prakriti, it's in the nature, in the manifestation. And the power to go into the void and to be absorbed in the Supreme Self, that's in Purusha, that's in the pure spirit. And of course they are complementary. To go in the pure spirit is Shiva, and to stop a storm or start a storm is Shakti. So, powers in Shakti are in the levels of manifestation, and things in Shiva, or just one thing in Shiva, is in the non-manifestation, in the Sahasrara. So, when Jesus does stop a storm, it's obvious that he is not just a Siddha. It's obvious that he is not a shaman who learned some shamanic trick, and he is invoking some low spirits of the nature, and says, Boo-hoo-hoo, do this for me so people will believe I'm great. It's obvious that Jesus is coming from over the hill. He is bringing something from Sahasrara and that starts bringing him mastery over the elements and other things. So there is an enlightenment in Shiva and afterwards there is an enlightenment in Shiva and Shakti. Brings the Shakti on as well. And those are the enlightened beings that also start having divine powers. And remember, there are some people who get some powers here, but those are not necessarily divine powers, although they can be paranormal. They are just the, the, the result of tapas. They are the result of practice. They are the result of this, and it doesn't mean that it's because of God. When Jesus stops a storm, it's because he is God. When a shaman stops a storm, it's because he is connected with some spirits of nature 
and he has a deal with them and he says I give you three chickens and for you stop storms for me when I tell you it's magic it's shamanism it's something else so these things may look the same but they are not in the case of Jesus we know very clearly that Jesus controlled the storm like the master of the universe from the level of Shiva he said ho ho my dear Shakti calm down and Shakti did calm down because it was Shiva talking to her so it's like he came from the spirit not by manipulating three forces against three other forces and kind of changing the course of forces of nature there are two ways of doing the paranormal things one is when you come from below and you just have to train and that is years of training hours and hours every day do trataka, do a lot of things and acquire some paranormal abilities such as sending prana through your hand or something and then there is the one which comes from Sahasrara and which simply says I don't need to do three, three years of pranayama because I'm God and I just need to will it and if I will it it will happen but that's the superior way and remember that's a way which is beyond Ramana Maharishi like even Ramana Maharishi and many others most of us who are into yoga with some spiritual realization we can't do that if we have states of samadhi it doesn't mean we can walk on water walking on water in India is mentioned completely separate from the yogic tradition and it is considered to be control over the water element the perfect 100% activation of Svadhisthana Chakra. For example, in yoga texts they say if you activate Svadhisthana Chakra at this level, the water element can never and will never kill you. Never. Even if they throw you in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, you will not die. The water and the animals from the water and anything from the water will not kill you. They are your best friends. So somehow something will happen and you will survive. For example, Francis of Assisi demonstrated the same thing with the fire element. He got power over the fire and he could feel it. And once they wanted to torture him and they wanted to burn his eyes with red hot with a blade, with a sword made hot, and he prayed to the fire, he said, Brother fire, God has made you beautiful useful and good I just wanted to remember the words because I wanted to so he used three epithets he said God made you good beautiful and useful pray do not burn me you know like how can you burn me when God made you to be useful beautiful good and they couldn't burn his eyes his eyes didn't get burned and piggybacking on that at some later time, you, you have heard me telling the story in some lectures or satsangs, he went to the sultan, to Jalahuddin or whoever the sultan was, you know, and he went to him and he said, I came to convert you to Christianity. And the sultan said, are you crazy? You know, like I've seen crazy preachers around, you are just one of these, you think I, the sultan of the Islam, will convert to Christianity just because a guy dressed in rags? And he said, no, I intend to show you that I'm right. And he said, I propose the experiment 
that here in the beginning, in the middle of the throne room, you make a fire, a huge fire, a bonfire. And I, together with any man which you designate from the Islamic religion, we are going to pray to God and walk into the fire. And we'll see who doesn't get burned. And the one who doesn't get burned, it means that one God is supporting. That that one has a real prayer. You can imagine that everybody shut down, that a man said, I'm ready to light a fire and we'll walk into the fire and we'll see. So the Sultan told him, Francis, there's nobody in my congregation here who is willing to take up this challenge with you. And then Francis says, it doesn't matter. Then I will do it alone. Just make the bonfire and I don't need to endanger anybody's life. I will pray to Jesus and walk into the fire. This is, from a yoga standpoint, that Francis of Assisi had control over the fire element. Of course, he had it through prayer. He had it through grace. He knew some angel came to him and told him, in a dream or in a vision or whatever, now God sent me to tell you that the fire won't burn you, ever. Well, so you can walk on fire, you can do whatever you want and so on. This is control of the elements coming from a divine thing. He did not work on Manipura 15 years, Francis of Assisi, to say, I activated my Manipura chakra 100% and now I can control the fire element under all its forms and levels and sub-levels. No, it was coming from above. So there are two ways of doing things. Developing, like if you work on Manipura you can do a lot of things. There is this uh, Taoist guy, John Chang, who is shown on YouTube, there are clips with him, where he takes a paper, newspaper, he makes it like this, then he puts his hand like this, and in about 10 seconds it bursts into flames. He can make it burn just by, it's called pyrokinesis, it's known in parapsychology. It's not only him who has shown it, but that doesn't mean he is enlightened, and it doesn't mean it comes with permission from God. It means that he has practiced some Kung Fu, Qigong and other such things. It means that he has practiced them for 40 years, every day, hours and hours. And he's got a Manipura that can do such bizarre things. In the case of Jesus, it's the other way. It's over the top. It's over the hill. Always try to think when you deal with the paranormal, if those paranormal things are the result of a systematic tapas and training, or if they are simply the result of enlightenment, and then capitalizing on that. So, people were right. They saw that it was not just some shaman who had power, and they said, who is this? He commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. Yeah. It's always, always controlling the elements. I was mentioning in the last satsang other implications of it. You can hear them again and connect. So, now we are going to another episode. They sailed to the region of Gerasenes. That's somewhere on this. If they sailed, they were on the Sea of Galilee, which is a lake which is just north of the Jordan River and north of the Dead Sea. It's Galilee, Jordan and the Dead Sea. It's like a cleft. 
So it's a small sea, it's a lake actually, a lake of a few kilometers wide. And um, they say to the region of the Gerasenes, which is across the lake from Galilee, either it's in today's Israel or in today's Jordan, it doesn't matter much because that area was an area of Jewish tribes and cities and so on. When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. This is something which happens often. Even we in Agama, sometimes we are courted by people suffering from schizophrenia and other demonic diseases of the mind, who desperately, intuitively, and sometimes also in a perverted way, they think that we can heal them. And of course, yoga and spirituality is the one which could heal such things. But uh, you need to be a little bit like Jesus to deal with this. You need to be like Milarepa. Buddha himself met with a schizophrenic murderer called Angulimala, who was killing people and cutting their phalanx, their fingers, and he had hundreds of fingers because he was a mass murderer. And this is just a schizophrenic imbecile. And he was saying that people are caught in samsara and caught in maya, and by killing them, he sets them free. So he considered himself to do a charity, and he was killing women, children, people. He was a sort of a highway robber, but he was not doing it for the sake of robbery. He was doing it for the sake of murder. This, in the language of modern psychology, this is a monstrously disturbed human being, a person suffering from a form of megalomanic, paranoid, borderline schizophrenia of a monstrous type. Buddha met him, just told him a few words, which changed the perspective, where he saw that that was not the way to do, to set people free. And then this man, in five minutes, in half an hour, he became a Buddhist saint. So, there's a small thing there. Stanislav Grof says, mystics and crazy people, they swim in the same waters. Like all these mysticism that we do. It's the same what crazy people access. The difference being that the mystics swim in it with ecstasy, like it makes them happy, because they are with God. And the mad people suffer and make other people suffer. The environment is the same. There are many schizophrenic people who have clairvoyance, who see auras, who can, you know, I've known schizophrenic people cutting themselves and then going and looking like this and blood was not flowing out. They could stop bleeding in their own body just by being, but they were crazy. They were not Jesus. You are not Messiah. So the crazy person is sometimes understanding some stuff, but his soul is not in the right place. He is not at home, and the result is a disaster from this. So Stanislav Grof was correct. He said mystics, saints, and mad people, they swim in the same waters. But the swim, the, the mystics draw ecstasy out of it, 
and the mad people, they just draw only suffering out of it. So, that's why sometimes many people say, it's better if you don't want to go into the spiritual part, it's better maybe not even to start doing yoga and the mystical things, because it's like you open the box of Pandora. You know, you are going in a place where bourgeois citizens don't go and shouldn't go. You go there only if you are schizophrenic or if you are a mystical seeker, a spiritual seeker. I don't fully agree with it because there are ways of expressing your aspiration and longing and spiritual quest in ways which are not provocative like we do in Agama. Many people do yoga and do yoga and who is becoming a schizophrenic? But sometimes people that are mentally ill they feel that we who are in yoga and who deal with spirituality, that we are somehow kindred to them. They think we are kindred, that we are related, that we see what they see and we understand them and therefore maybe that we have a solution for their fucked up lives. And it's true with mysticism and yoga, or if you are a Buddha or a Jesus, you can sometimes solve mad, mad things. But not everybody can. So for example, very many, there are many people who are fucked up in their head and they hear there is a yoga school which is not just about stretching and gymnastics and they would come. And they would come and unless some very powerful yogi would take daily care with them and attend to them, babysit them, nothing can be done. And therefore, if I want to be with you and not to attend to some schizophrenic patient, then we simply have to refuse them. In Agama, for example, we don't take people who are schizophrenic or who have severe mental disease and we tell them, sorry, we can't help you because there is no Jesus around here to take care. There is no Buddha around here to take care of you at the level where you need it. No? It's like, Buswami, could you do it? Maybe, but it would tax me a lot and it would make me tell you take six month holiday because I have a schizophrenic to take care of. Huh? And it's not the right price to pay. I don't want to pay that price. And thus, no, and that's why we prefer to tell them, sorry, go somewhere else. Here you cannot find relief. And therefore, they come. And as you can see, there are people who even among the people who persecute us now on internet and so on, some of them are obvious borderline schizophrenics. Anybody who has a PhD or a master degree in psychology can read such authors, people who write some of this senseless nonsense that is put online. And I'm telling you already, I even I don't have a master in psychology, but I have studied enough these things and I have known such people a lot, you know, and I know these are borderline schizophrenics. It's a form of borderline schizophrenia. All these people who lie about being raped and inventing things and so on. This is just mental disease. So people come because they have a pain in their soul. They have a hole in their soul and they are desperate because they live in hell. Although they are in the physical body, when they go home and they look in the mirror, they see the devil. They are not happy. Their life is a nightmare. Such people, I mean, I've known such people, some of them very closely, and they have one happy moment and one million devilish moments in their life. Their life is an accumulation of hell. 
and they know that when they will leave the physical body, they will not go to paradise, because the resonance, their disturbed resonance, attracts them even deeper into hell. So hell now and hell after death. So such people are desperate to save themselves, even like a wounded animal. But unfortunately, this is a terrible spiritual karma. These are the kind of people who assassinated Shams al-Tabriz. These are the kind of people who poisoned Milarepa. These are the kind of people who threw rotten tomatoes at Jesus. And now they suffer. They just have to taste the consequences of their actions. Not Jesus forgave them. But they didn't forgive themselves. They are the ones who had the karma. So severe mental disease, which is described in the Bible as often as a possession, as a man possessed by a demon. In modern psychiatry, it's severe mental disease. It's also the result of a bad karma. Bad karma. These people have a very, very shitty karma. No? And... For me or for you, if one of you becomes a great yoga teacher and you want to take care of one such person, I tell you, you are going to go through hell. That person has the resonance of hell. If you think you are some compassionate Messiah and you can take it, take it. But be prepared. Just remember that your old guru Vivekananda told you one night in a satsang that you will be confronted with hell. It's a little bit like the ideas which you see in the exorcist movies. That the exorcist is confronted with the devil. And therefore, you know, you have to be really, really strong to perform exorcism because you directly provoke the devil. There are very few priests today in the Eastern Christian religion and in the Western, in the Catholic, that dare to perform exorcism. I have known. I have known, I have seen exorcism and it, it's, you don't, can't imagine how terrible it is, especially when there is present a person that has this kind of influence. Like if a schizophrenic is there and something and is present at an exorcism, all hell breaks loose, you have never seen. I understood that some Russian priest put a clip of an exorcism on YouTube, so you may try to find actual images, you know, not Hollywood. Hollywood is bullshit. No. But it is inspired from something real. I have known people who did exorcism once a week. Old priests with a big white beard, three times as big as mine, and like really people ascetic, not involved in sex or in money or in anything. And in the day when they perform, there's a special text coming from St. Basil the Great. There are two degrees, the small one and the big one, which are being read. There is a special text for this. And those of you who saw the movie The Reluctant Saint, they did that to this saint who was levitating to make sure that he is not possessed by the devil. So there is a prayer written by Saint Basil the Great, which is terrible, terrible. And theoretically, for example, in the Orthodox Church, they say you should not read it alone. You are not qualified to read that paper alone because it produces the resonance in your mind and it may confront you with the devil. And the priests who do it, they are very afraid to do it and they are allowed to do it once a year on St. Basil's celebration, which is 1st of January, 2nd of January, something like this in the Orthodox Church. And um, 
I've met a few who are doing it every week, and in that day they are fasting. Old men, really, you know, they were fasting the whole day, like not eating anything. And I remember a woman came to one of them whom I knew I was there in the church, and a woman came and she said, can I pay for some service because tomorrow I want a funeral or a baptism or so on. And the priest was an amazing, fiery man. He said, no, 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 I don't touch money, like the physical money, the bills. I don't touch money today because I'm going to do an exorcist. Like in the day when they did exorcism, they didn't even handle money. Even the energy from touching bills was the, too devilish for them and too impure. No? And like they were doing this thing. And then I have been connected with the teacher who taught me chiropractic, who was the biggest exorcist I've seen in my life. This guy was doing this prayer of Basil the Great even five times per day, even ten times per day, per day, every day. He was completely not afraid of the devil, this one. He was one of the most fiery, terrible men that I have seen, you know, purely spiritual. He didn't need to do fasting. He didn't care about touching money. He was just on fire completely. But his life was something amazing. I'm not going to insist there too much, but I just want to show you the fact that modern psychology calls it severe mental disturbance and ancient mysticism calls it being possessed by a spirit who infiltrates your mind, who piggybacks on your mind. Your mind is like a glove and he puts the hand in the glove and then you are like Kermit the Frog. You see Kermit the Frog doing things but it's some John Smith who has the hand up in Kermit and makes her do things. Kermit is not Kermit. Kermit is the puppet master. So the demonic entities, they are like the puppet master. And then the person who is subjected to this is divided, is split, torn. No? The person is torn. There are people who are even afraid to come and see me and then afterwards they say, I don't know why I was afraid, because I feel so good. Yes, some puppeteer knew that I will snatch the hand out of the puppet. And therefore they say, don't go, don't go, don't go. It's what's happening now. Many people who went demonized in this crisis of Agama, they never came to talk to me. They never came to ask me, Swamiji, what did actually happen? What did really happen? No, like, let's talk. There is some open communication here. You are a human being. If you are going to lie to me, I'll probably realize that you are bullshitting me and so on. I just want to talk to you to see. No, very few, very few had the courage to say, what's your opinion about? What's your take? What's your view of the whole situation? What did actually happen? No? Why? Because there is this duality. Half of you, half of such a person, is the soul which is looking for the light. And the soul knows, I'm tied up together with a monster. I have a big leech on me. So the soul says, maybe if I go to yoga, I can become free. Maybe Buddha can set me free. And sometimes it does happen. But as I tell you, it takes huge 
effort. It takes a lot of focusing on that. Or again, in the case of Jesus, it takes like this. But not everybody is Jesus. The apostles tried to solve such a problem, maybe in this paragraph or others, and they did not succeed. And they say, why does it work for you? And because we pray to the same God as you. We say, God, Jehovah, or whatever they call their God, please save this dude from some demonic possession. And God was not picking up the phone. And then Jesus said, uh, you know, there are some demonic influences which require fasting and a lot of prayer. It's not only fasting and prayer. They require proficiency. They require that one should be advanced in it. Not everybody can do. I'm telling you, I've seen very experienced Christian priests who thought that they can do an exorcism per week. And then I met this incredible old man who could do it ten times per day. Like he could fight with the devil from morning till evening. You know, he was inexhaustible. He had one of the biggest Manipuras that I've seen in my life. You know, like he could be like, okay, you want to fight with the devil? I'll show you. You know, I have the Bible in my hand and I knock you over the head all day long. You know, it's like I'm, I'm not getting tired. You know, like he was a warrior of Christ. Warrior for Christ. No, but inexhaustible, fearless, incredible. So I've seen many degrees. And therefore, you know, that... Many demonic, in, the people who are in this situation, they are split souls. Because a part is their own brain and their own soul. And like any brain and like any soul, it's looking for the light. Eventually, in the end of the trip of evolution, there is enlightenment and liberation and nirvana. Everybody knows that there is a light in the end of the tunnel. And they are looking to that light in the end of the tunnel. And then there is the demonic companion... The other side, which is trying to do all the no, 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 no things, precisely because of this. That's why when you feel irrational fear to go to church or something like this, my advice is go. Get really stubborn, you know, when you feel something irrational. Like, I don't want to go and meet with the Dalai Lama. I have the opportunity. But why not? Why not? Why not? He's a great man. He's supposed to be spiritual. Uh, go. Go, because it means there is some demonic force which is trying to fuck you up and fog you up and make you find all sorts of excuses so you don't go. Then go. Go for God's sake and see what's going to happen. Maybe the best thing in your life is going to happen. Of course, things are not black and white. Paranoic schizophrenics and others, they are people who have a terrible karma, who may have killed a Yogananda or a Milarepa in their life, in the previous lives, who now have one of the most shitty spiritual karmas. These are the people who tortured Jesus or who killed Spanish priests and nuns and raped them on the altars, you know, like in the uh, civil war before Franco, you know, when there was this communist Guernica things happening in Spain. Atrocities were being done, things which are insane. If you read, you'll get your hair standing on an end, what human beings were able to do in Europe in the 20th century, you know, like beasts, beasts, something which is 
inconceivable, and others, not only those. There are many others. There are beasts everywhere. I just gave an example. So such people may have such a karma, and now they are born schizophrenic with their brain fucked up, and they don't find a way to the light. And even if they come to yoga, they still have a very huge spiritual karma, negative. And I have to tell them, you know, it's like, are you willing to do make some effort? There was a guy, just a parallel story, from one of these Christian monasteries in Moldavia that I visited in my youth. And then here is a story. There was a young a guy suffering from epilepsy. In classical medicine, in the traditional medicine, even epilepsy is a form of demonic possession, but it is not as bad as schizophrenia or others, because it doesn't alter very, very much your behavior in the daily life. It's only that from time to time the person has like an ejaculation where they give all their energy to a demonic entity. Any one of you has seen an epileptic seizure, I'm sure there must be some filmed on YouTube, because you find anything you want on YouTube. Or if not, there are some other snuff film sites on in, on the internet. You can see people having an epileptic seizure. An epileptic seizure looks like a person being possessed from hell. The image of an epileptic seizure is something scary and very unpleasant. And of course you can go and say, yeah, but medically there is an explanation. Yeah, medically there is an explanation. And also the pure intuition also works. It's not only that you have an explanation. It's only also that when you look, it looks bad. There is a documentary which some people expected something amazingly beautiful in it and it has very ugly parts. It's about Wilhelm Reich. It's made by a Serbian filmmaker in the 70s or something. It's called The Mysteries of the Organism and it's about Wilhelm Reich, his life, his story and his psychotherapy. And it shows people doing some Reichian psychotherapy. I don't even need to tell you more. I'm simply saying, see those images. What do people do when they hyperventilate and swing their hips and then they go into the catharsis or something? If you would put that image in the Lord of the Rings, you would say that there are orcs coming from hell. That's what they look like. There is no doubt about the fact that that's not the frequency of the angels of paradise or of Jesus Christ. Therefore, uh, intuition works unerringly, you know, like, do you want to be like that? Uh, perhaps not, you know. So, coming back, this is just another point about psychotherapy. It's stirring up some of the ugly, terrible, demonic, dark parts of the human being. But we don't go there right now in this satsang. So, I'm coming back to the story. Even epilepsy is a mild form of demonic possession. Because the epileptic seizure looks exactly like one coming from hell. One being tormented by somebody from hell. And uh, in this monastery, there was a monk who had epileptic seizures. And kind of he endured them patiently. And after he had been in the monastery for 10 years or something, one old monk, God knows how strong he was spiritually, one of these invisible old monks, you know, very humble, came to him and he said, Brother, I can see that you are committed to the path and you are, you know, like, 
would you like me to advise you, to teach you how you can get rid of this thing that plagues you? And he said, yes, Father, sure, teach me, I want to. And then he told, he gave him a few rules, out of which one of them was that he should never sleep in his room, but only in the church, which is holy ground. Sleep only in the church, and only sitting on a chair. Like with the back to the wall, like this, sitting in one of these chairs, but never lie down. You don't lie down, and you sleep only... I don't know if any one of you had the morbid curiosity of trying this, because it is a typical spiritual practice. For example, people who do retreats of meditation, sometimes they don't lie down. There are forms of Tibetan and other retreats where people sit, sit for three years. Even when they sleep, they sleep like this. And they never lie down. And I can tell you my experiment with it, part of it, as, a, as an earth sign, astrologically. First effect is that it hurts your back day and night. You have pains in the body and all the time you are just dreaming about lying down a little bit. Five minutes if I could be allowed to lie down. It's like there is no mercy. It's a sort of a Spartan thing where you die. You die doing it. And you say, okay, if I die, I die. That's it. Like no mercy. So this old monk told him, you don't lie down and you just sleep in the church. His epilepsy stopped from that day. It never came back. So this old man knew it's not a medical condition. Maybe it has a medical explanation that if he ate this and didn't eat that and slept only in the... uh, That can be explained in some neurological bullshit way. But that neurological thing is not the cause. It's the effect, it's the sort of instrument through which the disease manifests. But the cause is in the subtle worlds, and it is some negative influence. So, uh, again I'm saying, people that have this kind of negative influence, they would go in front of Jesus. Very often people would come. They came to Agama and they went into the pond and started preaching like Buddha. And they did a lot of things. And they came and they tried Tantra and they tried this and that. And now some of them are throwing rotten tomatoes at Agama and so on. It's like, can you punish them because they are schizophrenic? No, can you punish them because, because they already live in hell? Virtually speaking, their resonance is with hell. When they fall asleep, they dream that they are in hell. Their life is nothing happy. There's no happiness in such a resonance. And it will continue for many, many years from now on. There is no, and they come to yoga and they say, maybe there is a light in the end of the tunnel. Maybe you can help us. Sometimes we do, sometimes we don't. In my life, I have seen schizophrenics coming to yoga with my different teachers and friends who were having yoga schools, and approximately one in two can be helped. That means a success rate of about 50%, which is very low. With cancer and yoga, you can have much better rates of success than 50%. But this one is really difficult because it involves a very negative karma. And the person who in their previous life they killed Milarepa, 
They are very wicked and dark persons. And just because now they have a bad karma and they suffer, it doesn't mean that they have changed. They haven't yet become compassionate, humble, purified and good. They did not apologize. They did not atone. They did not repent. They did not speak to God saying, I understood my mistake. Please, please forgive me, if it's possible. Please, may I be forgiven. So because of this, it's very difficult to deal with this case, with this kind of cases. But remember, such kind of cases have a fatal attraction towards spiritual masters, gurus, schools of yoga, and places like this. Because half of it, there is an intuition in them that there is there something similar and that is a sort of an answer to their problem. Unfortunately, as a practical person, I tell you that there is not much answer to their problem. It's a lottery. It's like flipping a coin. You know, it's not necessarily clear that it will happen. So, when Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. No, he was not met by the mayor of the town with bread and wine or something. He was met by a demon-possessed person who heard Jesus is coming. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in the house, but had lived in the tombs. Like the Agoris, with the exception of the fact that the Agoris are spiritual practitioners who use the living in the graveyard to confront themselves with the fear of death and others, while this man was doing the same thing of the Agoris, but he was drowning. Remember Stanislav Grof, the madman and the saint swim in the same waters, only that the saint gets bliss and the madman drowns. He didn't say suffers, I said that before, but I have to correct it. He said, in those waters, the madman drowns. So this man was a sort of a fake agori. He was living in the tombs, but being a madman, not a yogi, makes a huge difference. Yeah, And he was not worn clothes or lived in a house, so he was a sort of a wild man. You can see the same example in an unfortunate movie. It's a really unfortunate movie. I think it's Canadian documentary which is about this young man, I forgot the name of the movie, some of you will remember it for sure. There is a young man who just wants to go and live alone in the nature. And he's tormented into the wild or something like this. Yeah, And uh, he goes and you can see on the first half of the movie, you can see the poor boy is schizophrenic, he's not Milarepa. He's not. He's a severely tormented soul. And the demons just send him to shit. And the proof is, he gets somewhere in the Canadian wild, and there he eats some poisonous plants, and he poisons himself and dies. And then they find him dead weeks later. And so on. Because if he would have been Milarepa, he wouldn't have been. The angels would have protected him from eating poisonous plants. It's exactly the resonance. The tree shall be known by its fruits. Milarepa did not die from some accidental plants. This young boy, he thought he was Milarepa or some smart thing. And the funny thing is that the movie 
is made by some ignorant idiots who present him like some sort of ecological saint of some sort. He was not, he was just a schizophrenic boy tormented by his schizophrenia. That's the sad truth. He's not a hero. He's a victim, that boy. No? And that's why, so this guy was not wearing clothes, living in the wild man. No, we have many of those. You have seen many. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, don't torture me. Two things. He, he greeted Jesus. And then he says, what do you want from me? Like Jesus had come to him. But Jesus said, are you crazy? I didn't seek you out through the villages of Judea. You fucking came in front of me. Because the soul of this man was trying, some, was, was looking for some redemption. He tried to be saved from this demonic hell in which he lived. No? And he came forth. And then the demon took over and said, what do you want from me? Like the demon. No? And here is one point. At this time, Jesus had not made statements exactly about who he was and what was going to happen to him. People didn't know him yet. They knew that this guy was something outstanding. Later, he is asking Peter, and Peter says, you are the Messiah and all that. No? But Jesus was, had not yet declared fully, look who I actually am and what's going to happen. But guess what? The demon knew already. Because the demon lives in the astral world and he has clairvoyance. And for him, Jesus was not a hidden entity. He knew who Jesus was. So the people didn't know, even his own disciples didn't know who he was. But he says, what do you want with me, Jesus, the son of the most high God? I beg you, don't torture me. Like the demon knows that if such a person wants to punish them, it's exactly like, you know, I think this morning I caught my head, I, I caught my cat pissing on my desk. And I kind of slapped her over the ass and I said, you can't do that. No? So it's if, if I have a demon around, okay, my cat is not a demon, so she got a mild one. But if I'll be a demon, I'll get a real spanking, you know. So the demon knows. If I go, I get punished. So with Jesus, you know, Jesus has zero tolerance towards the darkness and the demonic, you know. <clears throat> and he says, what do you want with me? Like now I'm exposed and I know what's going to happen. You are going to do exorcism, surgery on the aura of this guy and, you are go and I'm going to suffer. Everything which is spiritual makes demonic people suffer. Take again that quote from Karl Marx. When I hear church bells ringing on Sunday, it's like a dark fog is descending over my brain and I feel an inordinate desire to destroy or kill somebody because it's like a madness is falling over me. This shows Karl Marx to be a demonized person. If you react like this to something which is divine because the bells of the church 
are supposed to be the voice of the angels and the voice of God calling the Christians for prayer. Why would you get irritated? I mean, okay, I don't believe in Christianity. I think these guys are just uh, idiots. Somebody is selling illusions to them. There is no Jesus. There is no heaven. There is no salvation. It's fine. No. And then they have these stupid bells. And uh, it's like, how naive. No. Karl Marx was getting mad and he wanted to kill somebody. That's the reaction of a demon. So the demonic is scared of the spiritual. There is a war, there is a state of war. And the demonic knew. And he says, what do you want with me? Jesus, like you seek me out. Actually, he didn't. But it's it's like a car which has two steering wheels. Like these cars where people learn how to drive a car that the instructor also has a steering wheel to correct the mistakes of the pupil, you know. And it's a double steering wheel, it's a double command. Part of the command comes from the soul of the man who is the victim, and part of the command comes from the demon, and they have like 50-50 or something, you know. 50% of the life of that man is his actions, and 50% is the actions of the demon that possesses him. And you can't see, if you are his mother or friend, you don't realize that my friend Walter is demonized and he's doing things which are demonic or not. And this is not his action. It's some demon who made him to do this action. No? There were people in the school to whom I told even five years ago, four or five years ago, there was a scene. And I told to somebody, you right now behave like a person who is demonized. Because you do actions which are not yours. If you would be sober, you wouldn't do these actions. Many people in the school became very angry. They said, oh, Swamiji, that's too much to say that somebody is demonized and you are manipulating. And I'm not manipulating at all. It's in the spiritual history, only that people don't like to hear about it. Because when you smoke, the demons of the tobacco, they possess you. When you drink, the demons of the alcohol possess you. When you masturbate, the demons of the sexual energy possess you. And people don't like to hear this. It's too spooky to hear this. But this is the truth. It's not when you are, I don't know, smoking, you are not as possessed as a schizophrenic. A schizophrenic is possessed by something very dark and very hard. A lot. He cannot control it. Theoretically, a smoker can give up smoking in five minutes. Say, I stop smoking now. So it's not that bad. And the fact that you smoke doesn't make you do murders or horrendous things or just smoking. People become cold in their soul. I smoke and then I'm like, I'm not emotional. I don't care. I don't cry for mercy. It makes my heart cold. So, but it's still a demonic influence. It's still a, the shamans from South America who were the first ones who were using it. A bit in Central America and North America, they also had, but it was more in South America. They knew exactly that it's uh, one of the shamanic plants in which you have spirits which possess you when you take it. And when it was brought to Europe, the Catholic priests analyzing the effects which it had on people, they called it the devil's grass. Today, the devil's grass is sold in 7-Eleven without any shame. It's just sold. You know, people don't care. 
alcohol, tobacco, now they want to legalize marijuana. All these are just demonic entities. Some of them not really, really bad and dark, but still, and they try to control you. People say, oh, I'm not dependent on marijuana. Really, stop it for seven years. Show me. I ask for a demonstration of you. You know, it's like, people don't do it. They go for three months and they say, ah, I realize your request was bullshit. And you know, it's not your willpower is bullshit, not my request. Your willpower, because you are dependent on it and you can't stop it. And you lie to yourself that you can. Because those are entities which keep you dependent. Dependent on alcohol, dependent on tobacco, dependent on marijuana, dependent on other bigger things, dependent on sex or masturbation, dependent on different things. No? That's what it is. So these are all demonic influences, but on degrees. Not all of them is black and white. This guy from our story is a man who was a high-level schizophrenic, you know. So his life was a mess and he was like completely fucked up. But when he was put in the presence of Jesus, the demon being with the back to the wall and knowing that now the confrontation is coming, uh, revealed itself and spoke to the voice of the man. He says, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of God? I beg you, don't torture me. Because he won't let go. If I have a, a dog which is clinging to a bone and I want to take the bone, sometimes if the dog is too bad about it, I have to take a stick and hit it over the muzzle and say, let go. So the dog is tortured, has pain, because he won't let go. In the same way, a demon won't let go without fighting. And when it's fighting, it's losing. And when it's losing, it's suffering. And therefore, it suffers. That's why the Christian monks, especially the ones which were more warlike, they simply said the greatest method to get rid of the demons is to pray. Prayer. Prayer. Believe me. There is an, a methodology of prayer. Either you use the imitation of Jesus Christ, of Thomas Akempis, or you use the methods of Teresa of Avila, of John of the Cross, or the methods of maybe Francis of Assisi, who was not very clear about his methods, and so on. Or you use the Eastern Christianity methods, like the Hesychast method, the prayer of the heart, or others. There is something which in Bhakti Yoga, for example, Recta in Christianity, of course the same thing can be said about the Sufis, that they do prayer by spinning, and that's just one of the twelve forms of prayer. They have Zikr, and they have others. One school of Sufism has this dervish dance. That's not the only way, but that's the most graphically, visually stunning, and people always, when they say Sufis, they imagine that this is what Sufis are. Only one in twelve. One school in twelve is about this. So back to our story. But it's prayer. And that simply says, if you want to do prayer, if you have gone to a Sufi school, if you have gone to a Christian monastery for one week, and you want to do, what do you do? You do prayer for God's sake. And prayer is both established, which means in most Christian monasteries, there are six religious services per day. Matins, Vespers, uh, they have very special Latin names, starting with the Mass, the Misa Solemnis or Misa Sacralis, the Mass, the liturgy, and finishing with the midnight prayer. You have to wake up 11.30, go to the church, make the midnight prayer for one hour, 
and then at 12.45 you come back to your room and you sleep some more until the morning. There's always a midnight prayer. There are six per day. So if you are a monk in a monastery or a nun in a monastery, they force you to be in church and chant to Jesus. If every prayer lasts for one hour, which some last more, it means you are praying about six, seven, eight hours per day, every day. And if you are absent, the abbot will come with a big stick and chase you, you know, saying, what the fuck are you doing? You were absent to the prayer today, which means the demon is making you hide in a corner and you are not coming to do the prayer because the prayer is from God and the demons hate it. Christian mystics have said clearly, whenever you pray, it's like it's pouring with divine fire in your aura and any one of these leeches which are sucking energy from you, they get burned. That's why he says, don't torture me. They get burned. Prayer tortures demons. Not because it wants to torture them, but because they cling and they won't let go. Or they're biting hard on you and they need, they need a little bit of beating to let go. That beating is the prayer. The prayer is sending in your aura some very divine and pure energies. And those energies are simply, it's like you put sterilizer, hydrogen peroxide or some disinfectant on some viruses and bacteria. They just die. Prayer is like taking a bath with disinfectant, with alcohol or something. It just cleanses everything. And let me tell you one thing. I have lived in monasteries. I have visited different Christian places. I have visited ashrams in India and others, not like by comparison. And one thing is even known in their world. The biggest problem of Christian monks in monasteries is that they would do anything else but pray. They don't pray. They are in the monastery and they paint icons, they make furniture, they grow up olive trees, they do biological farming, and when they are obliged, they kind of drag their ass to the church and they sit there, hallelujah, 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 okay, thank God. Then they go. <laughs> they wouldn't pray a minute more than that. When there is a monk who sits in his cell and falls on his knees and he prays for two hours, that monk is like a miracle in the church because there is one who is not prevented by the demons to pray. He was when he was younger, but he got so stubborn and he went through it that the demons burned down and now he is free. And the other brothers and sisters... They simply envy him <laughs> because they are in a monastery and they cannot do the number one thing for which they are there. Go and see. They find any excuse and any pretext to be busy even when there is service in the church. Uh, I'm in charge of the kitchen. So I have to stay in the kitchen and cook for the rest of the monastery. No. But that's a way of avoiding to do prayers as well. So, not always. Again, I've met people who could do prayers in the kitchen. But again, it's this war. There is a spiritual war. So, this demon says, don't torture me. 
because prayer and the divine presence tortures the demons. It's exactly like you would go to the bottom of the Pacific Ocean or in a cave where there's never been daylight and there are these creatures which are white in color and which have no eyes or they have the eyes like the snail, some sort of blind eyes. And then you bring there a 10,000 watt source of light and suddenly you crank it up. Bah! For all the blind creatures in the dark, it's like torture. It's exactly as you say, oh, I cannot look too much in some strong light. Ima prayer is like that strong light. And if you are not open to it, <coughs> it tortures you. Those of you who will go to the art of dying, you'll see that that's exactly the problem. When you die, you are sometimes put in the presence of the ultimate sources. And then what you do, what 99.999% of the people do when they are dead, first hours, first days, they run away. They run away because they are afraid. They are like people living in a cave who see the light for the first time. And it's not pleasant. It even hurts. You say, oh, put off that light. You know, it's torturing me. So the presence of Jesus for such a creature is like torture. Yeah, you find people, you know, like it's the clear thing from the great expectations, right, of Dickens. This woman who was living in the darkness, she had pulled all the curtains and she was living with some candles in a dark castle. And then after she died, the other girl, she started doing the same thing. And the hero of the book comes and rips down all the curtains and lets the daylight come in, you know, says enough with this bullshit. No, there are people, I know people who like to live in the dark. Even in the movie, in the cinema industry, there is a gender, sometimes called film noir from French, but also others, in which if you look at a movie, like uh, there is this movie called Sin City, this very colorful, very uh, extraordinary made movies, everything is happening in the night. It's always dark. There is not one scene in that movie which happens in full daylight. Everything is like the vampires. They come out of the coffins only after the sun is down. And then from sunset to sunrise, they are on. There is a gender. These people are afraid of the light. These are people for whom when you turn on the light... On the contrary, it's six o'clock in the morning and the sun is rising. And like a bird, you wake up and you say, Hooray! Look how shining! I love the sun! I love the daylight! No? The same thing spiritually. So remember, in an interior way, the thing which produces this light is prayer. You're going to say, but I have learned in yoga about doing pranayama with the violet light or with a bright white light. Yes, because you are yogis and you learn things which Christian monks don't know in the monasteries. There is not only prayer. You can do pranayama with bright white light or with golden yellow light or with purple violet light. There are other ways of bringing these purifying energies in your aura and yoga is uh, extensive about it. But... Other, for other people, there isn't. So in Christianity, the only way to bring God in your body and in your life is prayer. When you pray, you open the door to God. And there is a white light which shines upon you. And then if you have some leeches who like the darkness, they will not like it. 
That's why it is said that demons hate it when you pray. Every time when you pray, the demons are tortured by your prayer. And it doesn't mean you should do it for the pleasure of torturing the demons, because then you are just a sadist, but it's just to give an image of the conflict, that there is a conflict. We can say the same thing about yoga practice in general. You are in a yoga school and you know the difficulty for many is that they don't practice. It's because when you practice, you burn down the demons. Okay, yoga is not all of it divine. Like if you do your, I don't know, padahastasana, it doesn't mean that you fight against the demons. You might still be very muladharistic and so on. So the yoga practice is a much bigger range of practices. In Christianity, they refer directly to the ones which connect with God. So you could limit it in yoga and say, but what about if I meditate with a mantra on Ajna Chakra or on Sahasrara? What if I am in the fourth level of yoga and I have learned the mantra of Shiva? Every time you say the mantra of Shiva, you burn the demons in your aura. The mantra of Shiva is the equivalent of prayer. The more you do it, the more you get in communion with something spiritual and divine. The problem is, do you do it? Are you doing it? No. So this is, is the same thing everywhere in all the spirituality. It's the same. Again, yoga has a wider range. And you can do some yoga just for healing your liver. It's not wrong, but it's not the same as prayer. No, it's Prayer is more focused directly on that contact. For Jesus, now we are being told why, which was inevitable, because Jesus, that's what he did all day long. For Jesus had commanded the evil spirit to come out of the man. This image is very uncomfortable, but you will have to visualize. The spirit was in the man, like a hand in the glove. You look at Walter, and it's Walter and 15 demons. So, you are talking to Walter, but you know, you know that not everything which Walter tells you and does is coming from Walter. Today, it has been demonstrated, for example, that we are full of viruses, bacteria, and microbes, which influence our life, and some of them are actually inevitable and absolutely necessary, like the microbiome, which lives in our bowels. If you so, sometimes the microbiome says, I want soya sauce. And they do something to your nerves, and they produce some chemicals, which make your brain go, soya sauce, soya sauce, soya sauce. No? And it's not you. It's the fucking beasts who live. It's a colony. A colony which lives in your gut. If you have candida, that colony constantly asks for sugar. And you say, ah, I have a sweet tooth. No, you are possessed by the demon of candida. That's the actual truth of it. But nobody likes to say it, because thinking in demonological terms gives people the creeps. It's like, oh shit. Yes, we are symbiotic with candida and with a hundred other things which form our, our microbiome. And the sad thing is, if they die, we die. We can't even live without them. But then our lives, with the lives of other creatures, what would you say if you had a boa snake inside you? Or if you had a tiger under your shirt? 
you know it would be obvious and very unusual well you do it's only not that visible as a tiger or as a boa snake and some of it lives in your bowels and some of it lives in your blood and some of it lives in your cells so we are like this we are superimposed That's why there is no need to get afraid of this thing with a demonology. It is important to know it and to know up till which limit you are ready to tolerate. Like somebody says, you know what, Swamiji, uh, I just gave up smoking and I'm eating a lot of sugar. So, you know what, I cannot fight with two demons at the same time. Right now I'm fighting with a nicotine demons and I am tolerating the candida I cannot fight with the candida and with the tobacco spirits at the same time so you know what in three years from now when I will feel stronger I will address my problem with the sugar that's a wise way there is a proverb Latin proverb about Hercules should have been in Greek but it has been promoted in Latin it says Nec Hercules contra plures. Not even Hercules against contra plures. Many. Even Hercules takes one enemy at the time. The works of Hercules, the twelve works of Hercules are done one by one. Not two at the same time. Because even Hercules is not smart enough to fulfill, to beat two enemies at the same time. So it has to be taken one at a time. That's why I don't want you to become hysterical and desperate. Oh, uh, no. No, take it with a sense of humor. We are constantly interfering with the spirits of nature. We are constantly interfering with the collective subconscious mind, which is fucking with our minds and puts ideas in our minds. There are many, many influences. The planets, the karma. There are many influences in the, in the life of a human being. And when you get to know about it, you don't get paranoid and afraid and you start running in circles. Like, oh my God, it's demons everywhere, it's demons everywhere. No, they are. And God created the world in this way. But the question is that when you are like this man, which Jesus met, then you are fucked. Then you are possessed way beyond the acceptable tolerance limits. And then even Jesus would come and say, I would not clean your candida, I would not clean your microbiome, but you have a demon which possesses you badly, that one, out, has to go out. So it says here, because Jesus had commanded, how? Maybe with loud voice, or maybe telepathically, directly, we don't know. We are not told that Jesus said, uh, get out. We are starting that the man came screaming and it was not the man screaming. It was the demon screaming through the mouth of the man and saying, uh, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of God? I beg you, don't torture me. Like the demon was afraid of Jesus. Well, it doesn't. It means Jesus was not just a lamb. If the demons were afraid of him, it means Jesus could be really hard as well. Don't take that Jesus was a softy who all the time smiled and told to people just gentle, new age, lovely stories. He was tough. He was God. And God sometimes burns and punishes. No, So it's like, okay, so 
don't torture me. And he says, because Jesus had commanded the evil spirit to come out of the man. And it's not enough to get it out. I command to my cats to get out of my office. And five minutes later, they are back in. So I have to lock the door if I don't want them to come back in. Right? So a, a demon must not only come out, but you must seal the doors so that it cannot come back. So Jesus, that's what Jesus does. Jesus does not tolerate one human being who is a child of God, a creature who theoretically could become a Buddha. Jesus does not tolerate to see this person possessed and living in a misery like this. At least he says, I live 30 years around here in Palestine. For 30 years, I'm going to do something which people will remember. No? Then I will not physically be there. And there will be many other people who will be schizophrenic or possessed or something. Maybe there will be somebody to heal them. Maybe not. Many times it had seized him, the spirit. And though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and had been driven by the demon into solitary places. Which means the community in that village was disturbed by this madman who was sitting out there and howling naked and behaving like, you know. The society cannot tolerate such people. You go in the middle of New York and start howling naked and, you know, they will arrest you. They will put you in a, eventually they will realize you are schizophrenic and they will put you into a mental institution. No? So that village also, and people had put him in chains. And this guy had broken the chains. Like this is why there is an expression which says the power of the madman. That people who are crazy, they have a superhuman power, physically, and in other ways. And sometimes they stab themselves with knives and blood is not coming out, as I told you about schizophrenics and others. They do things, that's because they are possessed, it's not their power. There are paranormal phenomena that happen with such possessed people. Paranormal demonic phenomena, paranormal dark phenomena which happen. So it said that this demon many times it had seized, which means there were moments of maximum, moments of crisis, which every psychiatrist knows that schizophrenics are normal for three months and then they get seized by a seizure and they do the most incredible stuff. So he, he had seized him, the spirit seized him of course, when it was full moon, when it was, you know, like there are some rules about when do these spirits get the power to attack. Because it's like, a, it's like some rules of engagement, you know. It's like you want to rent a car and go for a trip. And you say, first I need my salary to come into my account. And then when I have money into the account, I just go and rent a car and make a little trip. No, But if you don't have money, you don't rent the car. So the demon also has some secret things which make him capable to act and he doesn't have those things all the time and thus he says many times it had seized him but again alternatively and though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard he had broken his chains and had been driven by the demon into solitary places howling like a jackal no that's of course, we could discuss, but then I transform this into a satsang about demonology. It always is to a large extent. 
Like why, what are these people doing in solitary places? Why do they want to howl and make a do and so on? What is their animalistic need to behave like dogs and other things? And Jesus asked him, like now it was directly, and this guy was like in Darth Vader movies, when Darth Vader does like this, and the other guy goes, you know, Jesus got him like this. No, now the guy came, and Jesus, you know, and uh, Jesus asked him, what is your name? This is a typical thing in Kabbalah and in all the hermetic tradition of which Jesus no doubt was aware in some way or another. Kabbalah was not existing under its present form in that century, but the origins of it, the hermetic science, hermeticism, was already there. And in the hermeticism, you always, when you connect with spirits, you have to obtain a method that the spirit gives you their name. And then the name is put on a ring, that's why people have rings, and on the rings it says Helen and Walter. On Walter's ring it says Helen, and on Helen's ring it says Walter. This is magic. These are magic rings, which says Helen and me are tied to each other with a magic ring, exactly like Aladdin's lamp. It's a people had in magic rings, on which it said... Vasariya, which is the name of one of the guardian angels. Eh? And it said Vasariya. And this is the an, the an, the, it was engraved and put with pentacles and this. And this is the ring of Vasariya. And when magicians went there, they just touched the ring and rubbed it like Aladdin's lamp. And in their mind they said Vasariya, Vasariya, Vasariya. And the angel came. Because of this and because of this. So this is magic. So... Jesus, like a magician, no, because it's the easier way, he asks, what's your name? Because then you can tell him, whatever the name is, Azazel, that's the name of a devil, of a demon. And then you say, Azazel, fuck off. You know? And it's like you speak to a dog. You speak to the dog, you know, and say, Rex, go. You know? And the dog understands that you talk to it and you tell him to go away. No, so it's the same with the demon. It's the same. That's the now we are opening a little bit the door to magic, demonology, exorcism, and so. And first of all, he has to have the name. I think even in the movie The Exorcist, which is largely exaggerated, this William Blake or Peter Blake, whatever movie, that's what he's trying to get. He's trying to get the demon to tell him the name. Legion, he replied, because many demons had got into him. Legion is not a name. It means the demon answered and he said, we are about 30 in here. 30 of us. So like, whose name should I give you first? He said, Legion. Which shows a human being is not possessed by one. A person who smokes and drinks and masturbates and takes marijuana is already possessed by four demons. There is more. No? It can be much more. So it's like... And that possession is more mild, like, ah, come on, I'm not that, I can give up any second. Or that possession can be like, you will never see me giving up smoking. I'd prefer to be dead before I would give up smoking. That's a person who is held very tight, very tight. Yeah? So, legion, he replied, the man replied, but from him, because many demons had got into him. And they begged him repeatedly 
not to order them to go into the abyss. So much teaching in this. No, it's like, it's, I will not finish it tonight, but so much teaching. You can learn demonology and magic and black magic and a lot of things just by reading this paragraph and trying to understand it profoundly. Now, they begged him repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. What is the abyss? The Tibetan yoga says there are six realms, six extracorporeal realms where people can go, where spirits can go in the afterlife. One of them is the world of the gods that's higher than human and it's too good to be true. The second of them is the human world where your grandmother has gone unless your grandmother has been a bitch and a witch doing black magic case in which she is not in the human loka, she is in hell probably, which is another loka. So, deva loka, human loka, and then there are a few, one of them is the animal loka. For example, you cannot meet with your favorite dog in the afterlife, because you are in the human loka, and the dog isn't, the dog cannot come to the human loka, so if you meet your dog after you die, it's bad news, because it means you have gone into the animal loka, by mistake. No? And you are going to live among animals, not among human spirits. And besides these three, there is the world of the pretas and bhutas of the hungry spirits. There is the world of the demons, of the asuras, like the titans, as the Greeks call them in the Greek mythology. And the last but not least is hells. And hell is the one which is dark. And that's why here, in the Bible, not knowing Tibetan classification, they simply call it the abyss. Like the demons, and especially the diabolic entities, they come from a very, their home is a very, very ugly place. It's a very, very terrible place. And that's why they get bored in hell, and they try to get out there and to get busy with you and with me. Because it's not fun to be where they are. It's like people from Somalia or from Libya or from Chad, who are trying to cross the Mediterranean Sea in a dinghy, in a boat, to get to Italy. Because it's not fun to be in Central Africa. It's more fun to be in Italy, whatever you do. But it's much more fun to live in Rome than to live in Sub-Saharan Desert. And thus, what I'm trying to say here is that these demons are exactly like the... Emigrants, I don't have any pun against emigrants, I'm not condemning them. I just made an uninspired comparison, but in a certain way it holds. Because they don't like to stay in their realm, and they want to come and get busy, they get bored. And uh, if Jesus would say, get out of this guy, go back home. Then they are sent back to Somalia. They are sent back to the abyss. And they don't want. That's the thing which frightens them most. And see how smart the demons are. Many of them are Manipuristic, like the tobacco demon is a Manipura demon. And so it's not stupid. It's not, it's smart. And he says, now I met with Jesus, I'm fucked. There's no way I can fight against this guy. This guy is the expert of the experts and he's going to wipe me out in a second. And then they go on the second best thing. They say, there is no doubt you are going to send us out, but please don't send us home. 
So they pray to Jesus. They say, okay, we know we can't stay much as we would have liked, but at least give us the second best. Which is frightening to realize how much is happening there. And they begged him repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. Because it was enough for Jesus to say, go into the abyss, go back where you belong. He could, he had the power, he had the power to do pretty much anything he wanted. And the demon said, no, 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 please, not the abyss. Look what Jesus did, because he listened even to their prayer, not in a very friendly way, but he listened because he was God, and God has to answer to everybody's prayer. He behaved like God. And he said, a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. The demons begged Jesus to let them go into them, and he gave them permission. The demons belong very well into the animal world. Animals and demons very often fit. There are many, many of the demonic tendencies which fit with animal tendencies. And the demon said, if you don't let us keep this man, because you claim him, then at least can you allow us to be in some pigs? Like some pigs won't make a big difference. And we have to be somewhere. And we know we exist in this universe. So don't punish us 100%. Give us something. Guess what? Jesus accepted. He said, okay, stop possessing my friend, but you can possess those pigs. He didn't care. Because it was much less in the... The animals are anyway living... You know, like this guy was living like a pig, naked and... Blah, 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 blah. <clears throat> and then those demons went and lived into pigs, where they were like at home. They fitted very much with the pigs. That's why many spiritual people, they don't live too much with animals. Because the animals are close to the demonic. They are inferior. They are subhuman. And they can contaminate you with something. All my life I did not have animals. And now since I'm here, I make an experiment. And I have a couple of animals around my house. And in my house. And I'm studying this very carefully. How are these frequencies manifested through the animals? Many people think I just have cats because I like cats or something. It's an experiment for me. I'm a metaphysician, not a person fond of cats. I'm a guru. You know? So for me, it's an experiment to see what did Jesus see and how does this demonic stuff manifest subhuman levels, subhuman levels. Some human beings who are subhuman, they are possessed by such low category demons. They are not the worst. There are some which are all the way satanic, diabolic. That's much worse. That's really, really serious. But these ones, they were like demons, pig-like demons. That's why you see these faces like in the Lord of the Rings, all these human beings that had pig's heads and stuff like this. These are demons. It's metaphors for demons. They are not physical. All these orcs, and other things which look like monstrous animals. That is exactly where this is coming from. 
and he gave them permission. When the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. Like when the pigs got possessed, they became naughty, crazy, wild, self-destructive. Because that's how the demons are. No? A smoking person who is a little bit demonized, you tell them, tobacco kills. Ah, no, no, tobacco kills. Yeah, he wants to die. He wants to die. He knows. It's a self-destructive thing. The tobacco demon is a demon which is killing you and him together with him. So when these demons went into the pigs, what did the pigs do? They threw themselves into the lake and drowned. This shows what kind of demons they were. What were they doing? You know? And what a need they had to gnash their teeth and to do these terrible things. You can say, does somebody have that need? Yes. Yes. There are forms of existence in this universe which have that need or more. They cut themselves and look at the blood, how it's flowing. You know, these people who cut themselves to feel that they are alive. And a million other things. These are demons. 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 The people that cut themselves, lots of teenagers do that. It's a fashion. These are demons. A demon makes you cut yourself so you feel the pain and so on. And others and others. It's the same thing, only this is an extreme form. And when Jesus said, okay, go in the pigs, the pigs lost their mind and drowned themselves into the sea. It's like a disease of the mind. These demonic entities are. Let us stop for now because you got a big dose of demonism and demonology with this uh, story. But I hope you understood some very bitter things which happen in the human environment. There is more, there is much more. You know, don't forget, I have lived together with exorcists and I've seen lots of this stuff and experienced it in meditation, in prayer and in other ways. And that's why um, you have to either stay pure, prayer, 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 sattvic food, sattvic food, sattvic food and all the rest and stay away. Or if you are dealing with it sometimes, like we who are yoga teachers, sometimes we encounter it. And then the question, what do we do? And uh, then you have to be able to know it a little bit and to know what it is. This knowledge of the demonic influences which exist in the human being, they exist a little bit in Tibetan yoga and in the Tibetan art of dying. But in the Indian yoga, they are not mentioned very clearly. It doesn't mean that they don't exist. So when we look at Christianity and at Jesus, and when we look at the Tibetan art of dying and other such things, we know that it exists. And it exists not only for the Christians, it exists for the yogis and for every person on the face of this earth, these things exist. And as a great tantric text of India, Tantrasara used to say, those who know are above those who don't know. So the first step in your emancipation is that you have to know. Even if it scares the shit out of you and it transforms the existence in something more challenging, first thing is that you have to know what the nature of life and existence is because you are on a battlefield, blindfolded, and you don't even realize that you are on a battlefield. And when a bullet hits you, you say, where did that come from? Hmm? 
because you're walking on a battlefield and in a minefield and nobody told you. And it's better, therefore, to know. How much will you be able to stand up to this and to rise to this challenge and other things? I don't know, time will tell. It's not really like, hey, ho, let's do it and so on. It's not. But the first thing is that you have to know because your mind and your consciousness needs to digest these things and to say, aha, uh -huh, that's why sometimes I was feeling some impulses that I wanted to restart smoking or I wanted to restart doing this or that. It's my old friends who are calling me back. Maybe I relapse back. When you know this, unless you are a total jellyfish and an idiot, something is standing up in you and you say, but I don't know, I don't want to be the slave of those people. I want to live my own life. And that automatically creates the sense that na, 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 na. Now I know you don't play with me so easily because now I know. So indeed, those who know are above those who don't know. But of course, even when you know, sometimes the demonic tendencies can be there because the demons are not ashamed or afraid of the fact that you know. They try to make you smoke again anyway, even if you know. They try to make you masturbate and lose your ojas, even if you know. No, because like for them, it's good anyway. Either you know, and when you know, then you start punishing yourself. And you say, uh, what an animal I am. I restarted smoking. See, I... I don't love God at all. I'm so miserable. I did yoga for six months and I quit smoking. Then I started again. How weak, how much of a lousy crazy. No, you are not. The demons just try to discourage you so that you don't try again to get out. No, it's all a psychological warfare in which you are free or you are not free. Remember, you have microbiome in your bowels. So you are never free, free, 100%. We are symbiotic entities. We live in symbiosis with many spirits and influences. And it's not possible to get rid of it. But at least it has to be like Jesus had a microbiome which created his stool when he was eating and pooping. No? But his microbiome was just exactly what was in the blueprint of Mother Nature. No more, no less. He was just right, not possessed by it. Meditate on these things. These are very hard truths. If you want to ask more about these things in the Q&A, thank you all for resisting tonight this hard thing. I will continue a little bit last time when we started. With this we have finished for now. And we stopped.